You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. I'm going to hand over now to Rob Lyons, the head of the British Council India, before introducing uh, Rachel Dwyer's panel. So I'm going to introduce Rachel and then Rob. <laughs> Rachel is the great expert on India and cinema, and she's assembled around her the other experts on all aspects of cinema and media. She is a professor at SOAS, and we're extremely delighted that she travelled with us from the UK. Just before Rachel introduces her panel to begin an afternoon talking about culture and digital, I'd like to introduce Rob Lines of the British Council India, a great supporter of ours. Rob is what you call a stalwart of the British Council, 16 years. Um, and without further ado, I'd like to hand you over to him. Thank you. Thank you, Julia, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, before we move on to the panel, I'd just like to say uh, a few words. Um, basically, I'd just like to say why we are partnering with Names on Numbers and tell you a little bit about a new project we are about to launch called Reimagine, which I hope will be of interest to many of you in this room. The British Council, as many of you know, has had uh, 60 years in India. Uh, we are regarded as a valued and trusted partner. And we are, our purpose is about creating international opportunities for people in the UK and people in other countries and helping to build trust between them. And we do this through our work in education and society, arts work and English. But the core of our work is the exchange of knowledge and ideas, which we believe helps promote understanding and helps build trust. And this is why we are partnering with Names on Numbers a conference which is about sharing knowledge and stimulating and provoking ideas through the outstanding voices that are here today. Trust is at the heart of any relationship. And the UK and India have enjoyed many years of cultural relations. But we can't take this relationship for granted. And this is why we are launching a new project called Reimagine, which sets out to explore cultural relationship between the UK and India in the 21st century. And I would just like to invite anybody who is interested in working with us on this project to speak to myself or colleagues who are here this afternoon. So, thank you very much. And now I'd just like to hand over to Professor Rachel Dwyer, who uh, is going to introduce the panel. And the panel discussion will be about the singular influence of cinema on media and communications. Thank you very much. Thank you very much and welcome back after a wonderful lunch, part of all the warm hospitality that we've received at the hands of our host, but which we're so used to getting when we're here, we almost seem to take it for granted. So thank you again for all that. They always say people don't need an introduction and then proceed to give a very long introduction. <laughs> I'm going to say these people don't need an introduction, but give very brief introductions because you have plenty in your handbooks here about them. And to be democratic and non-sexist and so on, I'm going to go from left to right, if that's the way I'd like to do it. And Amit Kanna, who I've known for many years, has had so many roles here that it would take me a great deal of time to begin to describe them, but is currently at Reliance and working on all sorts of media and film and still I hope writing Amity yes. and, and working. Mira Sayal again, somebody who has another very complex CV, writer, actor, comedian, mother, mother and also <laughs> does, a great deal, does a great deal of work for charity, <laughs> I believe as we say it. So again, a multifaceted person. Shamji, where do I begin with, with Shamji? Of course, he has many important roles, not least being an MP and holder of many awards, but really for all of us, it's about films which is so much part of our life. And I think, you know, from Angkor and Bhumika, right up to today, where you're really reaching out to new audiences, um, somebody whose work in film and media we all know very well. And Bulky, who's in Lintas and made two films, but two important films, I think, um, Chini Kam and Pa, 
again, which are well known. And it's odd for me, in a way, being up here, because my students write about many of these characters um, sitting next to me in, in their essays, which they submit. I've had Jeannie come, and of course, Bumika, and of course, Mira's work. And so, Amit, um, you're probably the least known to my students, but you're the person with the industrial know-how. And perhaps when people are in the industry, they get a bit sick of all the cliches that they hear about the film industry from the outside. It's always the biggest film industry in the world. And then you have to have a caveat, well, yes, in terms of numbers, but not in terms of finance. So where's that going? Is, is Bollywood, as it's called now, and I believe Amit's meant to have first used the term here, where is it going, and is it really a global cinema as it claims to be? And what does global mean in this context? I mean, Indian cinema's been global for 100 years. It's been screened around the world since the early silent films. But does global mean America? Does it mean Northwest Europe? What does global really mean? And that's something I hope we can talk a bit about here. And also this idea of Indian cinema as a soft power. I mean, people often feel that's not important, and yet this morning when I was listening to people talking about the attacks on Bombay, I mean, one of the things that the, you know, the, the attackers were saying, they were using a lot of the language of the media and film when, during the attacks, and their leader was saying, you know, after this, tell the pe people, a picture baki hai. This is only the trailer, and the picture still remains to be seen. And then this year I was in Karachi talking about Indian cinema and you can feel it very much is a soft power. It's the way people often know India from the outside. But it's a way of knowing India from the inside as well. You know, it's, a, it's an imagined world. It's such an important part of people's imaginary lives, how life could be, how life should be, or even how we don't want life to be. I think this is so important in cinema. So I'm going to begin with you, Sham, as you've had a great experience here in cinema. And we're thinking about the way cinema is sort of changing now. We're hearing about Indian cinemas gone global. What does this mean to you? Is this just hype or is it meaningful in any way? Now, you see, one of the, one of the things that I'm seriously concerned with is that over a period of time, you know, because when I started making films, or wanting to make films even, at that time the whole idea was that you're finding for yourself a medium in which you could express yourself well. Alright, so that, that was the process. But over a period of time, what happens is when you start doing that, you're functioning with a medium, that is, you are communicating, not on an interpersonal level, but with a large number of people at the same time. So you have a kind of, uh, it becomes art, because the manner in which you function with your audience, it becomes from a very personal kind of uh, communication to a popular kind of communication, because then, you know, there's also a response. But over a period of time, I find now particularly that we have moved from the popular culture format to mass culture. And when I say that, I, it's a matter of some concern, largely because today, if you make a film, one of the things that happens to you immediately is that if you're incapable of promoting it to the extent that you create elbow room for yourself, that people must come to know that there is such a film that is there, you will be lost. There's no way you can get across. And if you cannot get across, it's almost as though your work is completely pointless. So the, my real concern now is that ever since cinema has become part of mass culture, we have gone into a territory that is completely beyond our control. It is in the hands of people who promote the film and the way it is designed and the manner in which that money is ploughed in, particularly to get, you know, you, you saturate the market with the film, with your prints, and your concern not about, you know, whether your film is going to make money or not over a period of time, you have to cover your cost maybe in the first five days of your release. The sole concern is that 
Let me, let me ask Amit about this, because yeah. Amit, you're involved not only as a creative person, but also very much as a business person in this field, aren't you? How does that speak to your experience? Well, uh, let me first take uh, two points from where Sham left. I think we have to keep in mind that any art form needs to and does evolve over a span of time. We have uh, completed a century of cinema. Uh, cinema actually came into existence about a hundred years ago, or a little more than a hundred years ago. The Indian feature film industry will complete a hundred years next year. Uh, so, a hundred years in a historical, from a historical standpoint may not be uh, a very long time, but in the lives of media of the last century, it's a fairly long time. Uh, so, some kind of evolution of the, the art form itself uh, is necessary. Unfortunately, cinema, because it has been all pervasive and, and such a dominant art form of the 20th century, has very strong, die-hard uh, uh, cineas and practitioners of the art form who are not willing to accept this change which is a, a fundamental tectonic shift uh, 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 to be able to come to terms with it. Uh, the second most important thing, and that again alludes to the second part of what Sham said, uh, I think the most significant develop, social development uh, in the last 10 years is that we have people call, you know, talk about the attention economy, I talked about it 20 years ago, and then people started talking about uh, the attention deficit. I think we don't suffer from attention deficit. What we suffer from is attention theft. Continuously, our attention is being stolen away from us. And there is very little of the private space left for us to own. And it is not being given up voluntarily. Uh, so that's a distinction which I would like to make. But I'm not too sure whether that process can be reversed. Uh, the greatest catalyst for this change, of course, has been uh, the Internet. Never before in uh, the history of uh, humankind are more people connected with each other than, uh, than at present. I think, uh, if I'm right, uh, there are about 3 billion people out of the 7.5 billion who are in connected with each other in some form or the other, a phone, uh, 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 you know, uh, broadband, <coughs> or in, in a worse case, from a sat uh, with a sat through satellite uh, television. So uh, when half the world, and, and if you discount the fact that two billion of the seven and a half who are uh, living in the world, two billion are below the age of 10. So obviously they do not have that kind of social impact. So virtually 60-70% of the population is networked in some, some form and will increasingly get more, closely, uh, uh, clo uh, more closer uh, as, as time goes by. So where is the space for interpersonal communication in a large network society? Uh, that's wonderful, because I was going to actually take that on to Bulky there. I mean, you're somebody who works mostly with two media, aren't you? Advertising and film. And the, the transition to film, you know, we're thinking about the theme, the singular influence of cinema here. Why, why film? What does it still have to offer us in this media-saturated world that Amit's talking about? What did you feel film still had to offer, given the choice of other media? available, why did you want to make film? It's, um, you know, it's, film is, in any medium, whether it's advertising or film, you want to tell a story. But in advertising, you need an excuse to tell the story, which is a product link or a way to sell a product. In film, you don't need an excuse to tell a story, you just tell the story. That's the only difference. Uh, but I, I just believe, like, like Sham said, uh, it is, you know, when you come and you do a film, uh, I, you know, it, it, it took me a lot 
to, to want to promote the film. I, I do promotions for a lot of products, day in and day out, from soaps to shampoos to mobikes to telecom to everything else. When it comes to film, which has always been kind of pure, as an audience you've kind of stood in queues, you've stood in lines, you've, you've dreamt of you know, the screen opening up, you've dreamt of the music coming on and you're kind of watching it. It's, it's something that you're dying for. And suddenly, that something that you're dying for has to be pushed to the audience. I mean, it's not that it wasn't pushed before, but it wasn't pushed as blatantly as it is right now. It takes a bit of, you know, reconciling the fact that, hey, a film is a product like anything else. So, and there are so many films happening today uh, versus uh, what used to happen before. Then people have only so, so much money. How do people know which of the films that they have to see? How do you interest people into saying, see this film and not this one and not this one? So it's exactly the same thing. People have a limited amount of money. And there are a lot more products happening today than they used to happen uh, before. So if it's necessary that you kind of promote the film and you, you market the film, you tell people why this is more interesting than the other films that you want to watch. So I think that that comes with a simple uh, reason that we're making more films. And we need to promote our films so that people can choose. That's all. But now you see we're talking very much now about film as a kind of commodity. It's something we market. It's something we consume. And I think, you know, Mira growing up in the UK as a British Asian, You've, you, you must have obviously watched many movies and you've, of course you've written for movies and acted in movies, but that's not your primary medium, is it? Um, or is it? Well, it was, it was one of the important mediums through which we made our presence felt, but um, I think the big difference is for, for us getting a movie on was breaking into virgin territory. We were trying to create an audience for the stories that no one else had heard before. When we, um, the first time we wanted to do Goodness Gracious Me and we, we approached the BBC, the first question we got asked are, are Asians funny? And we said, well, we think we are, but you know, you're going to have to give us a chance and let us tell you. And there was a genuine feeling that um, who would want to watch a bunch of Asians? I mean, and there's still, that's the underlying message sometimes. So I feel all the movies that have, have made an impression in Britain, like um, Bend It Like Beckham, Bargy on the Beach, My Beautiful Laundrette, which I think really started the whole indie scene off for us, really broke through despite not having marketing, not having demographics, none of that. We had to have faith that the stories we were telling were important enough and told well enough that we would create our own audience. And that's what we did. So I always, feel, I always feel when you're trying to market something to the largest possible audience, you always get the lowest possible product because, because it gets diluted and diluted and diluted. Whereas when you start off wanting to make something because you are desperate to tell the story and because the story comes from the heart and because you are desperate to make people see you differently, it has a different kind of edge and you have to work a lot harder to get your audience, but those are the films that people often remember. Was it easier for you then writing, I mean, writing fiction, people have known that for hundreds of years, thousands of years, Asians have written fiction. Was that a much easier path to tread than the television one or the film one for you? Sorry, writing fiction. Was it? I mean, was on the business side of it, people weren't. People didn't say to you, "Can Asians write?" Because people know they can. Mm. Was that a much easier path than when if you're trying to get into television or film? Mm, not really. It's still. It's still in film. It came down to who is your audience and who will watch this. The only reason that Goodness Gracious Me, for example, I know it wasn't a film, but while we're talking about you know, demographics and the product, let me talk about that. The only reason that Goodness Gracious Me got a commission in the end is that it got its first airing on Radio 4 at 10.30 at night during the summer break and was this massive hit. And the BBC suddenly went, hang on, Asians don't listen to Radio 4, <laughs> especially not at 10.30 on a Friday night. My God, that must mean all the white people are listening. So when they realized that it was crossover and that our audience started with the white middle-class Daily Mail reader, that's when they got interested in giving us money. And that's very interesting, this idea of the kind of the crossover and which films travel where. You know, that 
Hindi films, Indian films have travelled the world before, but they've really only reached into Europe and America via the large diasporic communities that have settled there. And I don't think many of the British Asian films have come back to India. Sean, do you think a good film works anywhere, or do you think there are cultural specifics? You see, a, a good film does go anywhere at all. But uh, having said that, there are also things that you have to remember which have to do with a whole lot of local cultures. You see, for instance, a British Asian film is not something that would say automatically, you know, unless the subject is absolutely universal. Now, for instance, Bhaji on the Beach, for instance, traveled really wide all over the place. There was no problem there. But it was, it was based on a premise of the story itself. Mm. You know, now, when you have something like that, which is totally universal, then those films travel extremely well. But those that are not, that are very much caught within the culture of the place, is much more culturally specific, those you have to, you see, you, they have to be interpreted in some ways for an audience outside to really get to. Because it doesn't make itself evident in the same way unless the subject is absolutely universal. I can give you an example. For instance, Pathe Panchali, made by Satyajit Ray way back in 1955. Now that film, even today, if I go by what the film societies all over the world, there is not a single day when it has, is not being shown in at least 50 different film societies all over the world. Now, this kind of movement, I mean, this is a film that was made a long time ago, 56 years ago. Now, you have that kind of thing happening. You have films, for instance, you have, you take a Chaplin film. You know, the, the universality of that made it accessible to any audience all over the world. But at the same time, there were other filmmakers, if, even if I go back to the silent era in the American films, you take um, Buster Keaton, for instance, didn't travel as well as Chaplin did. You know, so you have those kind of things because also a lot depends on where, what, in what way your subject actually is, you know, where you locate it and how you deal with it. Now, both have different kinds of values. Now, the fact is it depends on whether you are, you are making a film, because I don't believe any filmmaker sits there and says, I'm going to make a film that is going to cross over. The moment you start thinking like that, it's not your film anymore. You're not making your own film. So you're doing something that is based on all sorts of uh, exter ex external things, you know, that has nothing what you do whatsoever to do with your own basic creative urge. Now, to, also to relate to, for instance, what Balki said something very interesting, yes, you have to promote your films because that's the only way to get across and people have a greater choice. But the truth is not quite that because the, to me the truth is it depends on the kind of hype you can offer. Because it's not a question of, you see, it depends on how much money you actually spent on the film and how much you're going to cover. If we are relating it to that, it's a different matter altogether. But sometimes there is a matter of great overkill. Because you're talking about manipulating an audience, mm. clearly manipulating an audience. You really are not thinking in terms of audience choice. You know, you push a film in such a way that it's, it's constantly in front of your eyes there's no way you're not going to be affected and want to go and see it. The, the whole purpose, the whole attempt is, the whole promotional attempt in many cases is of a kind that precludes your making a choice. You don't make a choice anymore. You just go to the film. Now, it is true that films collapse in spite of all of that. Mm. But when we talk about films collapse in spite of all of that, you also have to see how, how much, that's why I said first five days are crucial. Five often. days is too long. Yeah, <laughs> no, but if it, if it does well, 
now there are some films that have, which I think are bloody awful, but that have done brilliantly. You know, we, we, now this is the point, you know, the fact is that there are films that you would, there are certain films that you will, you go and see them and even critics constantly, you know, reviewers, oh, this is mindless fun, you know, a term like that, now to my way of thinking doesn't make any sense at all. It is not supposed to make sense. You already said it, a mindless fun. You know, so there is a whole process. So, in filmmaking, we've gone into this great uh, kind of uh, situation which no longer is the relationship between you and your subject and your, the manner in which you're going to express yourself in relation to an audience who is meant to see it. If they don't like it, they, they don't like it, but if they like it, they will also you know, word of mouth will carry that. Because there was a time when films succeeded on a basis of word of mouth, no longer exists. That, that world will never return. Hmm. Because clearly it will never return. But I know, you, you mentioned Bhumika. Now when I made Bhumika, it collapsed in the first week. In Bombay, it collapsed in the first week. Then it was released elsewhere also. Similarly it collapsed. Do you know, it was the second release of the film that made it into a Silver Jubilee hit. Second release, which took place six months or eight months afterwards. Now, we've had cases like this is no longer possible in the business. It's no longer possible in the film business today. It's not possible to do that. There were times when you did, when these things did happen. But, you see, because it was word of mouth, of course, in Bhumika's case, it was also something else that had happened because it, it was given an adult certificate, which was an absurdity in those days. You know, the way social nature of going to see movies used to be in India, if you gave an adult certificate, women never went to see the film. While my primary audience was women anyway. So, you see, the, so it was one of those problems that had taken place then. But, these things constantly change, you know, there's, there's nothing you can say remains the same. Now, the audiences at that time, the audiences today, the audiences themselves may actually be the same, but the conditioning and the systems in which we operate today are so different from the way you used to operate then. Yeah. That's a nice leading point. I can feel that, I mean, how, how much do people know their audience? Well, you know, days? let me just try and uh, enlarge this discussion hmm. a little bit. First of all, let's go back to a little earlier in this discussion about this, the, the sense of loss which uh, some filmmakers have about losing uh, contact with or, or interpersonal contact with the audience. Please go back 5,000 years in history. Indian culture is till the 16th century was entirely oral. It was, there was no promotion. You had to, so whether it was from the oral, uh, uh, you know, the folk theater, or uh, much later, you know, a, a, a form of storytelling called Dastan Gohi, which came in from Iran, uh, and uh, which was based on the fact that you actually told a story to, to an audience which could be of one, or at best, uh, you know, a few dozen. And there was no promotion. So, the, the, the fact is that all storytelling, by its very construct, is interpersonal. You cannot tell a story to a wall. I mean, you can, but uh, that's not uh, any form of narration. Uh, Sanskrit has a very interesting word for this. In fact, it's the only language which had a word uh, uh, which goes back, I think, 2,000 years. There's a word in Sanskrit called sampreshan. Sampreshan means communication and it comes from the combining of two words sam and preshan which means that I speak and you listen. That is the, the way you communicate. You cannot communicate in, in a vacuum. So this was understood by uh, our grammarians uh, uh, 2000 years ago. The second point which I want to debunk completely is I have, in, I have spent 42 years, perhaps even more than Sham, in this, uh, in, in the film, feature film business, 
uh, and I have not, and I work probably I have in India has have the maximum worker experience in Hollywood. So I have worked with almost or or have in some direct contact with almost all living uh, major direct major living directors in Hollywood. I have yet to come across a crossover film. <laughs> there is no crossover film. It's a myth which was perpetrated by some people 20 years ago, and media latched onto it. I mean, Ang Lee never made Crouching Tiger as a Chinese film. It was planned as like Slumdog Millionaire. It was not an Indian film. It never was planned as an Indian film. So similarly, Crouching Tiger, which is oft quoted as the great crossover film from China, was a Hollywood film made for Hollywood. The only thing was the location was uh, in China, uh, in a certain uh, time and space. I mean, all of us have made films like that, and uh, you know, Chini Kam was shot in uh, uh, in New York, uh, part of it. So it doesn't mean that it's an. Uh, 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 he was trying to cross over to just because of his location, trying to cross over to to, to the the U.S. So that that's the second point. The third point, uh, which I want to to just uh, expand on what Sham was saying. See, I agree that, and this goes more for popular cinema than for, uh, yeah, you know, than than the the more artistic cinema. That earlier on, say 20, 30 years ago, you had this whole concept of word of mouth, etc. But let me give you one number so that it puts the whole thing in perspective. Never before in our cinema's history have somebody when when a Sham Benegal film is released, it's watched by more people than any of his previous films. Because that is what, whether they pay for it or not, that's another question. Because the internet is actually a very democratic medium. It, ex it is extended a whole world of, outside of, of your immediate neighborhood. So I think the idea, the, the problem here, and this is what everyone is grappling with, the smallest independent filmmaker to the largest studio is how to monetize that gap which has existed between the audience, which is there, which is watching, and the uh, but, but not paying. So I think that's the dilemma. Let, while we're talking about audiences, let's get back to our audience. I'd like to know how many people here who are Indian have seen Baji on the Beach, and how many people that are here from the UK have seen one of Sham Benegal's films. See, India is a much more curious, culturally curious society, I think, perhaps than the than the British one. But I'd like to have some questions from the audience. Mihir wants to start. Could somebody give him a... It's a question for Sham. Sham, you were the first major film director here to make a film on political figures. I'm thinking of your film on Shubhash Bose. I have a particular question on that, the Amartya Sen question uh, that he put to you. But um, um, why is it that your great hero and probably one of India's, one of the world's greatest filmmakers, Ray, never made a film on Gandhi. And why is it that Indian filmmakers haven't made films about their politicians, something that Western filmmakers regularly do? Yes. Why, why hasn't there been a film about Nehru and his romance with Edwina and all that sort of stuff? Is there still this barrier? And as Amartya Sen asked you, why did you not allow Shubhash Bose to kiss his Austrian woman? Well, if you... Of course, it was a very simple thing. It did not get released widely. It had a very small release. Because I think the producers felt that there was no point in spending too much money on a film, which they weren't absolutely sure would make a lot of money. And I, this is my own reading, because there's no other reason why it was not promoted at all. And it was shown in very few theatres, very few screenings in each one of those theatres. And obviously there was no opportunity for it to earn any money. As a matter of fact, um, let me also add here that the DVDs of the film, this film was released in 2005, the DVDs were released just three months ago. You know, so the, the, the fact was, it depends, you know, it depends on when you make a film, whether your producers feel that there is anything in it commercially or not. Now, I don't think the producers felt that there was anything commercially in the film, whatever. 
So they really didn't, they decided that it, to say, you know, okay, that was an investment waste, they forgot about it. Now, the way you can, these are things that happen in filmmaking. So it's, a, it's, it's not a, it's nothing that um, anybody, I mean, this has happened in history all the time. There's nothing new about this. But if it is, if you're asking a larger question, as you, which I think you are, now, the large, about, you mentioned Satyajit Ray, for instance. It was just a question of not, you know, the, the fact was that he probably wasn't interested in making anything like this. You know, so where, where's the question? The, the, it's a question of filmmakers themselves deciding the film that they make, because it's a very personal, personal choice. You see, because that's why you say there is, it is a medium Apart from everything else, it's also a creative medium. You know, I mean, filmmaking is a creative uh, vocation. So if otherwise it wouldn't be, it could be a manufactured vocation, wouldn't it? I mean, you could just manufacture films. Sometimes I do feel that many films are actually manufactured, not actually made by a single person. When I say single person, it's always a team effort, of course. Clearly, but the, 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 the vision, that, that singular vision does have, to, does have to exist when a film is made. You know, but you can manufacture a film. What's the problem in manufacturing a film? Some films actually are. And I'd just like to add to that, Mahir. I mean, the biopic's not a big genre in Indian cinema anyway, and Shams probably made more than anybody else of those. But I mean, do you remember when Attenborough wanted to make Gandhi, the outcry of Maraji deciphered he would kill himself if the film was made. Um, there were all sorts of outcries. I mean, he didn't, as you know. Um, <laughs> and the film was made. And um, there was a huge outcry about you couldn't depict Bapuji on the screen. And then the best person on it, of course, was Nehru, who said he wanted um, Attenborough to cast Alec Guinness as Gandhi. Which would have caused, I think, quite an outcry in India. But Nehru, who knew Gandhi probably better than anybody else, said, you know, but Babu would have loved that. It would have been a great sense of humour for him to have been played by an Englishman. And of course, Shams' film on Gandhi, I mean, stands. But I think, you know, it's very hard to make a film on Gandhi at all because, you know, somebody who's so revered, I mean, people don't even like films being made on film stars because they think in some way it always disrespects them or diminishes them. I think, but it's a great shame because all these lives to be made, Hussein Saab, what a great story for a film, but will anybody ever make it? I don't know. Can we have some more questions, please? Yeah, my name is Mudit Jain. This is a question for anyone. I go to this, see a film based on a director, but the stars have hijacked that, uh, you know, uh, position of a director. Anyone would like to comment? No, not in England. <laughs> I wish. So who's in charge in a film when it's made in England? Is it the director? Is it the stars? Is it the person with the wallet? Uh, the money people and the director probably. I mean, it's a slightly different system. Of course, when you're talking about co-productions with America, there's always a star at the helm. You have to have the star in place to get the money generally, but they can be a little more creative around the edges. Can I just ask Balki, because Balki, you've only made two films, but you put in Am Amitabh Bachchan in both of them. How was that working as a director with such a big star? So it's all about what you want to do with a person and what's the story that you want to tell. And the story that I wanted to tell um, with Amitabh Bachchan was, was right for him. So that way, I enjoyed working with him because he was a great actor. So more than the star part of it, see, I think the stardom and everything else happens before you start the film. Once you do the film, it's about the actor and about the role. It's got nothing to do with the stardom. Yeah, no, no. I, I just want to understand the question from you. How, how, why do you get the sense of feeling that the star is hijacking? Because the stars are marketed more than the film. Itself. Well, that's why they are the... the what is a, who is a star? The actor, the actress. Well, you are, you are actually answering your own question. There's a difference between an actor and a star. So a star is somebody who is more saleable, so obviously that, that person will be marketed more. But how, do, how does that imply that the director is not the boss? No, no, I'll answer that question. I'll answer the question yours. I, I don't think you, you can dismiss stars so easily, saying why are stars hijacking and stuff. There are millions of people waiting to see stars. So that is entertainment for them. There are movies that make no sense, but it's so entertaining because you like to watch a certain person on screen for two and a half hours. That is entertainment by itself. Its filmmaking is very different to a filmmaker and very different to the audience. 
Okay, and I think it's about what the audience wants. I mean, if you see a lot of Amitabh Bachchan films in the 70s and 80s, and if you were to say, were they critically great films, or were they stories to be told, and then who would kind of ever think of doing Amar Akbar Anthony? I mean, they're the most ridiculous film, but fantastic film, very difficult to make films, but pulled off because of a charisma of a man. There are certain people endowed with qualities who you, which just make you watch them for nothing at all. And they just do all kinds of things, you love them for it. I think Amitabh found it very difficult not to do the same thing because people wanted him to do the same thing over and over again because they paid to watch that. You know, and that's the power of a star and they are very valuable commodities because they are art forms created for you already. And we have no business as filmmakers to say that, hey, our filmmaking is more important than the star value because people see that as an art form. People see that creation as an art form. That's really important to respect. How easy is it to make a film without a star in it? It, it, it is quite, it is, there are a lot of films being made without stars. There are a lot of stories. Of course, the economics dictate uh, you know, how the film must be made and what budgets it must be made and what the audience is. But there have been fantastically successful films. Apparently, there was a, there was a Telugu film uh, very recently called Kanchana or something that was made without any star. Nobody knows who, uh, who the actors are. It was one of the biggest box office smashes. I mean, people get fascinated. In fact, a lot of stars have been created at a time when there were new stars being cast in a fantastic film. Like, take uh, Bang Baja Maharaj. It was an absolutely commercial blockbuster which just happened. Two new faces. I mean, Anushka is relatively new and there was an absolutely new face, new director, new everybody. People just loved the film and they became stars. But that was also a Yashraj film, wasn't it? There were a lot of Yashraj films with stars that have flopped. Mm. A lot of Yashraj films that without stars that have flopped. Mm. It's the film. Mm. And I do not believe this word of mouth does not work. You know, there's a funny uh, thing. The definition of word of mouth has changed. It doesn't take long to spread. It spreads in three hours today. You know, if you, if you have a damn good film from the first show to the second show, you will see such a jump. Because the number of theatres that there are today in the country are million times more than what they were before. So if you actually see that when you say that a film became a silver jubilee, yes. You know, the, the, the biggest problem today is you make a film for one year. And in three days, the world has seen it, or the world has decided what to do with it. That's a, that's, a, that's a great thing for a filmmaker to swallow. One year of work decided in three days. But if you actually look at it, in the three days or four days, more people are seeing that Absolutely. film just in theatres, not even on the internet, just in theatres, than what people saw for 25 weeks. There were far fewer theatres. So if you look at it that way, with, with a perspective and with technology, the same rules apply today. The same things happen today. And hype has made a lot of people cover up for bad cinema. See, there's always been bad cinema. It's not that bad cinema is a thing of present. There have been enough bad cinema and enough good cinema always. In fact, there's more of bad and more of good today. So, it's, it's just it's the same rules. We're just playing in a different field. Small question, so we could talk about all of these for hours. Kishwa. I thought I just wanted to take a cross-check with uh, Mira because uh, uh, she works in the UK. And do you find that the influence of cinema on our media and communications in India, if you look at it, is far greater than exists in the UK? I mean, UK, it is, there is cinema being made, but it definitely is not such a driving force as you might find it in India. I mean, it definitely does not dictate uh, how we live, how we speak, uh, um, uh, you know, how we romance each other. I mean, out here, everything is dictated by cinema, eating, sleeping, everything else. I think you're right. I think, you know, culturally it's had much less influence um, on the ethos, on the national character. Um, also, I guess, you know, we have the, the issue that uh, what Britain wants to export as British film doesn't necessarily include us. We're a very, very small part of that. Um, you know, right now it's the King's Speech and Downton Abbey is the huge hit on television and I guess because we're in a recession, people are wanting to see nostalgia and be reassured and always at, at times like this people in the minority or minority voices or less commercial voices get very ignored so a lot of us are looking to India now and we, we, you know, we really want to collaborate with um, people over here um, but it seems to be, to be quite difficult to do I mean that's something that 
you know, maybe people on the panel could, could illuminate, but for the first time in many years, I think, you know, the British Asian artistic community feel that we're really on a par with the Indian middle class here because, because of urbanization, you're going from naught to 60 in three seconds. Uh, and you are asking yourselves the questions that we have been asking ourselves for a couple of generations, which is about what do we keep from the old culture? What do we adapt that's new? What's the changing role of women? What's the individual responsibility versus community responsibility? How do you handle duty versus desire? These are things we've grown up with. These are questions we've all had to ask ourselves as British Asians. You are now asking yourselves these very big questions. So I think this is a great time because there's so much talent, so much talent in, in the UK that really is not being funded or promoted or supported right now. We are really looking to work with people over here because I think we could do fantastic films, but I don't know how open the industry is here to collaborating with us. Good question. We can keep on. Let's have some more questions. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I wanted to understand why, of, you know, from the filmmakers, is why do we accept this ridiculous amount of censorship from the government as well as, you know, from the non-government side as political parties can decide what kind of films can be made or cannot be shown. Why do we accept that much amount of censorship? Well, well, none of us does. Uh, I mean, come on. I, 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 none of us does it uh, willingly. And, uh, no, but even willingly or otherwise, I mean, at some point we have to take a stand and say, okay, this, censor, this kind of censorship is not allowed. Well, you'll have Somebody to from Bandra calls and says, show me the film before you release it. It's we don't, you know, there are 1,000 films made every year in India. 1,100 were made last year. Maybe five films have gone through that process, and that is because of the the individuals involved. Uh, people like Sham and I have constantly, over the last 20, 30 years, fought uh, against censorship. And uh, uh, I believe uh, that today, with recently, you know, in, in uh, with uh, during Prakash Jha's recent film Arakshan, there is a Supreme Court order which will help uh, uh, filmmakers a lot, which actually says that once a film is certified. Uh, it cannot be uh, stopped or, or uh, so you know we didn't have a law like that till recently so the, the state governments and the local governments actually took uh, you know we all talk about the uh, article 19 etc the, the fact is that there is in the in the statute book there is a provision that if the local magistrate thinks that this film can cause a law and order situation uh, they can st stop the release of the film. So that was the, the, uh, uh, the particular clause which was used. It was not censorship. Actually, I just hoped somebody could answer Mira's question about um, is there potential for, you know, is the Indian film industry interested in British Asians at the moment and the talent that's there, or is it not interesting? Of course. Of course. I mean, I think uh, everybody is interested in interesting subjects interesting stories, interesting script, everybody. I mean, the biggest, uh, uh, you know, what do you say? <laughs> the thing that we need most in the film industry, better scripts. So wherever they come from, be very, very happy. Obviously, you need to kind of tailor, there are a lot of things that you, you might have a, a, a British um, sense of humor in a, in a script, which may not, the Indian audience may not quite get it. But depends on what the film is being made for, where the film is being screened. And I'm sure there are a lot of studios in India which are already collaborating with a lot of talent uh, all across the world. And we'd love it. Really love it. I'll say that as an invitation. Yes, of course. <laughs> and I, I, I'll say that on behalf of it. We'd love it. <laughs> Sham, you've never worked with British Asians, have you, in your film? Um, I think you should be Oh, worried. sorry. I've got a mic. I've got a mic. Um, have I used British, you haven't, British actors? Yeah. I have used. Oh, of course, you have. Yeah, I have. Yes, I have. But uh, I'm, I mean, what's the difference? I can't see any difference between taking British actors or our actors. It eventually has to do with the kind of film you're making. So, um, and how they're used. That's the most important. What kind of parts are you giving to them? And what are they supposed to be doing in the film? You know, because we've gone past the stage of pure exotica in such matters, you know, because the world has become much smaller today and people know very much more about each other than at one time when you used um, people from the outside more for, a, for the exotic appeal than for 
in any real sense, you know, because all that has changed now. So the question simply doesn't arise. I don't see what the difference is and what this whole hullabaloo is all about. Okay. <laughs> Discussion, Javed. Yeah, I just wanted to understand, um, you know, in terms of the, I think in a sense, the very malign influence um, this sort of um, this sort of Bollywood culture is having on the printed media and on television, because if you look at the printed media and television, um, it is hugely Bollywood dominated. I mean, um, you know, much more so than, and all right, in, in England you have the sort of bag culture and you have whatever else in that good part of a celeb culture, but in, in, um, in India it's just as if TV as a medium, for example, um, and, and certainly the print media have really been stifled by this particular thing. Now, I mean, I mean, what are your comments on that? I mean, you, I mean, I'm, I'm being rather prejudiced, but I mean, the point is that it means really good or bad or what? I mean, what, do you, what do you feel? Would anybody like to begin with that? I mean, I think it's one of those things, you know, cinema produces the biggest stars. So the people that are in cinema are going to feature, they've always featured in magazines, newsprint, you know, in India, dating right back to the 1930s, have been these film magazines telling us about lives. But it's that sort of Bollywoodization of, it's not just print media, is it? It's music, it's fashion, it's, you know, I think it was the last time at the closing of the Commonwealth Games in Australia, you know, instead of having the folk dance parade, it was Bollywood for the first time. But, you know, is it just a trend? Is it, you know, it's not been going on that long. Is it going to keep on happening? Or is it just that it's a very fertile medium that's growing and expanding, so it's bound to reach out? I mean, is it a deadly creeper, or is it just a very fertile, self-propagating plant? I don't know what other people think. But, you know, there is also the fact that stars, and film stars particularly, because they, films produce stars, more than any other kind of sports, of course, is the other area. And they are all exceptionally wonderful brands, you know, to, to for products. And so today, some of the biggest brands happen to be stars, film stars, certainly in India, and also uh, sports stars, cricket stars, cricket players, who are uh, huge stars and who are huge brands, very valuable brands, because here's an advertising man, practicing advertising man, who will tell you all about that. I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's getting boring. It may not last for too long, this Bollywoodization of media. And it, like, like, for example, I keep uh, telling people, um, Bombay Times used to be the first thing that people opened up when the Times of India came every morning. Uh, today, it is no longer so. If you actually look at it, Bombay Times is not, because you, when, when people have an overdose of anything, it stops being interesting. And it's a matter of time where there will be a balance or at least Bollywood will become more interesting in media. So one of the two things will happen. Uh, it's just a matter of time. And the second thing is, frankly, there aren't many, many interesting things happening except scams, Bollywood and cricket. So what else would people like to watch and what, how do the television and the, and the newspapers make money? If there were more interesting things, they would be there. There aren't many. Well, I think on that note, before we let our panel overtake the other panel, I think we need to wrap up. But I'd like to say thank you very much to all our panellists today for their contribution to the conference.